the rapture. <laughs> now, now, <laughs> you wouldn't think it'd be an electronic beep, would you? The rapture, part one, uh-oh. At long last, we come to the event which many, erroneously in my opinion, think to be the starting point of the eschaton, what us pre-tribs like to refer to as the rapture. The word rapture is derived from the Latin rapio, meaning to, sneak, to seize to snatch, to carry away. Now in this session, we'll make the case for the rapture. Why do we believe there will be a rapture? In parts two and three, we'll examine the events of the rapture itself. The pre-tribulational rapture, I'm sorry, the pre-tribulational position is that the church will not go through the seven-year tribulation, also known as Daniel's 70th week. More on that to come. Because it, the church, will be removed from the earth by Christ himself just before the period of tribulation commences. In fact, it's easy to conclude that the rapture event itself is actually the trigger, the, the breaking point that releases the events of the tribulation. That is, from an earthly perspective, underlined, earthly perspective, waiting in the wings is Antichrist who sees the elimination of the church from the earth as his opportunity to begin his campaign. Now's the time. Got that church out of the way. He, I, I, I can imagine him wringing his hand and saying, oh boy, oh boy. Every time we drive to Marshalltown to see Linda's parents, we drive on the freeway past this church, this small church on the left, and it's, it's all these years it's been kind of isolated, just sitting there in a field as if there aren't very many people coming there. That's the impression you get. Well, in the last year or two, a developer has put in streets around surrounding the church. And I can imagine the pastor going, oh boy, oh boy, are we going to start packing them in? And in a negative sense, I imagine Antichrist doing that after the rapture, when the rapture occurs. Now, I think I'd better flesh this out a little bit, what I've just said. Why might Antichrist consider this his perfect opportunity? Turn, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 
chapter 2. And let's read verses 5 to 7. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now that's pretty opaque, isn't it? Pretty mysterious. Now understand, many do, but, but not everyone agrees with the position I'm about to state. This has been debated for the last 2,000 years, what Paul means by this. I believe this passage refers to the removal of not just the church, but the Holy Spirit from earth. He is the restrainer at the rapture. Now, I'll, I'll not take the time here to substantiate this. If you want to take issue with me, I recommend that you read pages 160 and 161 of my Thessalonian study, which details this. Then we can talk. There will come a moment in time, a season, a proper time in the life of the Antichrist, when Father God will declare, now. Suddenly, without warning, the righteous force of the earth, of the church, good grief, the righteous force of the church will disappear from earth, and with it, the exerting influence of the Holy Spirit. In their place will flood in evil of all sorts, and the, quote, man of lawlessness, end quote, will gradually show himself to be the savior, in scare quotes, for which the world has been waiting. He will be a sweet talker. He will be the salvation for everybody. He's got all the answers. He's going to take care of them. Everything's wonderful. Until three and a half years later, when he sets himself up as God in the temple in Jerusalem. Then it'll be too late. He'll be winsome, agreeable, helpful, because like his father, he will be a liar of the first order. A good liar. Then after a few years, when he takes his seat in the temple of Jerusalem, he will be revealed for what and who he truly is, the Antichrist, evil incarnate. And the period that follows, the second three and a half years, the great tribulation, will make the previous three and a half years look like a walk in the park. Now, we don't think about this very much. I don't believe we do. Quite to the contrary, we think things are pretty bad now. How many of us go to bed at night thinking, it can't get any worse than this? 
the people in charge, the things they're doing, the things they're not doing, the things they are not respecting. We think, come Lord Jesus. Can't get any worse than this. It will get worse. This is nothing. We fail to realize the positive influence of the presence on earth of the church. In, in so many areas, in so many countries today, we think the church is impotent. And by what we would like it to be, it is. But just imagine what happens on this earth when every church like this, every all the way around the world, gone. Now that would be bad enough. My contention is when that happens, the spirit is gone too. There's no believers on the earth. There are no organized bodies of believers, no churches. No spirit. Evil says, now's our chance. They can do whatever they want in a supernatural sense. All hell will break loose. Gradually, sweetly, Do I have time for this anecdote? Quickly. Years and years ago, those who've been in my classes have heard this. You can just smoke them if you got them. The years and years ago, I wrote a play with Satan was in it. It was about Christ during his time of temptation. And I played Satan as just an offstage voice. And I played him all gravelly and evil at the time. Later I realized that was wrong. That was the wrong interpretation. Evil, Satan would speak sweetly, lovingly, suck you in, then he hits you. I, don't, I think when he was speaking to Christ during his temptation, why? He was beautiful, he was sweet, he was loving. Christ knew better, of course, that he was the father of lies. Now, I said that is from an earthly perspective. From a heavenly perspective, however, it is God's opportunity. Of course, he's the one orchestrating it all. If one appreciates symmetry, Think of the rapture as the end times reenactment of Noah's Ark and the tribulation as the end times reenactment of the flood. Turn please to Genesis chapter 6. Let's start on the left side here. Genesis chapter 6. Verses 5 to 7. 
Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 to 7. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. I'm sorry that I made them. Why did I ever do that? Now, all the way to the end. Revelation 6, please. This is just some of what will occur. Just a taste of what will occur during the tribulation. Chapter 6, verses 12 to 17. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth, and as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who can stand? Sounds a lot like what happened during the flood, doesn't it? How bad it must be to say, please, mountain, fall on me. Kill me now. Tradition, as well as specificity, says that the rapture is not literally Christ's second coming because he does not literally return to earth but remains in the clouds. He doesn't touch down, as it were and is not seen by everyone on earth. M.R. Dehan refers to this as the first of two phases of his second coming. Okay, fine. His true second coming is when he returns in triumph, in judgment, in righteousness between the tribulation and millennium. That one will not be private. Everybody will know all the way around the globe. It will not be private, but universal. That one will not be silent to the unregenerate, but deafening. It's time to throw in a sidebar here about a different position closest to ours regarding the eschaton. It's called the classic or historic premillennialism. This position has the events roughly in the same order, but with two important differences from ours. In historic premillennialism, first, 
the church age is extended through the tribulation. That is, Christ does not return for his church until after the tribulation. Christians alive at the time will suffer the tribulation. And second, between the tribulation and the millennium, Christ catches up the church, dead and alive, just, just as we believe. The, the only thing that's different is when this happens. And immediately turns around and returns. So what we separate by the tribulation, rapture, tribulation, Christ's second coming in judgment. In this position, historic premillennialism, that rapture is put over here just right before. So Christ comes, takes up the church, because God's word says he returns with his saints, and then immediately comes back for judgment. Thus, in historic premillennialism, which, for example, one example, Wayne Grudem, respected theologian, commentator, scholar of God's word, this is his position. There is no rapture of believers separated by the tribulation from Christ's second coming. There is only one return of Christ, and worst of all, the church must suffer the events of the tribulation. And before we dig into the details of the rapture, and as to those details, there are about ten individual components in the event. Let's pause for a moment to appreciate it for what it is. Upon departing the upper room after the disciples' last supper with Jesus, he comforted, the, comforted them with the promise of his return. Turn please to John chapter 14. Gospel of John chapter 14 verses 1 to 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That word translated receive or take is a, is a wonderful word choice by the Savior in this context. The Greek paralambano means to receive near. But it's far more than just physical proximity. It includes the idea of associating with oneself in any familiar or intimate act or relation. It's a picture of Christ Jesus returning to warmly embrace those who are his own. And he associates himself with us. You talk about grace. <laughs> with me? He wants to associate with me? 
He wants every other believer to know that, yeah, he's mine. You're mine. They're all mine. I can think of no better illustration of the contrast between the perspectives of earth and heaven. Thinking in human fleshly terms, if any one of us had made the kind of sacrifice Jesus made for sinful humans, I imagine our response might be something like, hey, after what I did for you, you owe me. You can find your own way up to heaven. I'll see you when you get here. I've already done for you. You're on your own, buddy. That's the philosophy of this earth, this culture. But of course, that does not at all reflect the perspective of heaven, nor the heart of our Savior. The same measure of love that agreed to be nailed to a cross for sinners is the measure of love that sends the lamb that was slain, Revelation 5.12, rushing down to the proximity of earth once again to bring home those who have given their lives to him, to call them to himself, to conduct them personally, safely, intimately to their new home with him. It will be glorious moment I don't know if I want to be the one that comes out of the grave or the one that gets to witness the ones coming out of the grave and being there I want to see the whole thing now let's make the case for the rapture please turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 Although it is indeed mentioned elsewhere, the best sources for detailed information about the rapture are found in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and his two letters to the Thessalonians. One of the challenging aspects of eschatology is that some terms or titles of events seem to be moving targets, difficult to place, well, is, is he talking about the first part of the, of the tribulation or the second part of the tribulation? Is, is it referring to his judgment, his wrath? What, just what's going on? Where, where do I place this? Trust me, for two years, I would you just tell me? Just say it flat out. One of the more obvious examples of this is, quote, the day of the Lord, end quote, which the Apostle Paul references in the first few verses of chapter 5. Let's, let's read chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. By using, the, by using the phrase, the day of the Lord, Paul refers to far more than just the initial moment of the rapture. That phrase is used elsewhere to refer to and include, for example, 
the ultimate overthrow of God's enemies, which can include the idea of judgment, Isaiah 2.12, 1 Corinthians 4.3-5. A day of national deliverance for Israel, Jeremiah 30.8-11. A day of salvation, 1 Thessalonians 5.9. The day of God's wrath against his enemies, Isaiah 13, 6-11. The Great Tribulation, Matthew 24, 20-21, with Jeremiah 30, 7-8. Or Christ's Second Coming, Revelation 19, 11-21. And the destruction of the present earth and heavens, 2 Peter 3, 10. Each one of these, as a subset, references the day of the Lord. It says that's the day of the Lord. Now, Dahan, for one, grabs hold of that phrase like a thief in the night and immediately concludes that this passage is all about the rapture. We'll see that it's not. Paul proceeds into this passage and very soon in verse 3 we realize that he is not describing the rapture when he mentions a thief in the night. Verse 3, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. That's not a picture of the rapture. And we see that his reference to the day of the Lord does not refer to the rapture. For that verse has nothing to do with a silent and instantaneous rapture, but to Christ's more public second coming in judgment and wrath. I, boy, I want to see that. This whole world sees, if they think of Christ at all, they see him as a hippie, as a flower child sticking daisies into the, butts, into the barrels of rifles, sweetness and light with this wan expression on his face, his feet floating a few inches off the ground with a halo over his head, and he just loves everyone. That ain't the Christ who's coming in judgment. He comes with a rod of iron in wrath. He says, all these millennia you have rejected me. Now you're going to pay. Paul then proceeds to contrast those in darkness, that is, those who will suffer God's wrath, with those in the light or day, and that, quote, you brethren are not in darkness, end quote. And he concludes his thoughts on this with verses 8 to 10. Chapter 5 still, verses 8 to 10. But since we are of the day... Anytime you see the day, that's eschatological. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, bingo, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. The key verse for our purpose is verse 9. God has not destined us for wrath. That is, 
he uses us as a synonym for those not in darkness, those you brethren, believers, those in the light in the day, who are all sons of light and sons of day. Verse 5. Believers have obtained salvation. Soterios is the Greek from that wrath through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word soterios is one of those Greek words that can be used in all kinds of different situations. It means salvation, exactly. It means to, to be, to save. But it can be saved, we think of it as salvation, saving us from damnation, from hell. Rather than an eternity in hell, an eternity with God. But it can also mean salvation from wrath. It can mean salvation from sickness, death. It just means it, it rescue from something. As mentioned in our previous session, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, the word translated wrath is orge, meaning anger, indignation. Vengeance, punishment. It speaks of God's anger and retribution. It speaks of the same kind of wrath he exhibited when he flooded the earth to wipe out mankind. So I'm, I'm sorry I, may, I did this. I'm just going to wipe the slate and start all over again with this guy Noah. Who had his own problems. So why, if, if, if this wrath, this tribulation speaks of God's anger and it is a picture of his retribution against all those who have, been, who have rejected him, why would he inflict this on those who have embraced Christ? The seven-year tribulation period, and especially the second half, the Great Tribulation, will be a terrible time to be alive on earth. Terrible. When one reads in the Revelation the heavenly perspective of the tribulation period, the hideous plagues and pestilence and utter destruction inflicted on the earth's inhabitants by God and his Christ and his angels, there's no better picture of God's wrath inflicted upon the sin and depravity of this world. Everywhere in God's word when he says, when, when we complain in the Psalms, like Psalm 73, why, why are you letting them get away with this? This is where they don't get away with it. The beginning. The tribulation is the beginning of them not getting away with it. What the Lord God will release upon the earth during the tribulation, no sane human being would wish to experience. It will be a hideous time to be alive on earth. So why would he inflict this on his church? On everyone who loves him, who, who claims Christ Jesus as their Savior and Lord? We believe he will not. We believe his word says 
that he will not. We are saved from that wrath. Now, I have left time for any thoughts, any questions, comments, retribution, wrath. You know, Scripture tells us that God knows everyone from everyone who will be saved. It's part of his plan. Does Satan know those same people, or is he just picking through what's left? Does that make sense? Do you think he has access to that same list? Or is that, uh, you know, above your pay grade? (laughs) I don't know the specific answer to that. But Satan is supernatural. Satan has capabilities far beyond those of mere mere man, mortal man. But he's not God. God knows things he doesn't know. What, What baffles me is, he's read God's word. He knows God's word. He knows how it ends. Why is he doing this? That's, except to just gather up as many souls as he can possibly get before his last day. I, I, that's evil. Well, I'm, I'm dead. I'm gone. Let's take as many as I can with me. That's all I can figure is his motive. But he knows what's, how it ends. He's not stupid. Satan is not stupid. But as to your specific thing, I wouldn't think so. That's God's list. That's book of life. No one's able to open the book, right? Except the lamb that was slain. Yeah, Greg. We read 1 Thessalonians 5, the second coming, which isn't the rapture. Should we read 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, which Paul does describe as the rapture? We have two more sessions. I forgot you said this was part one. Part one. In good time. <laughs> I appreciate you mentioning the classical view. I was hoping in the coming lessons you might touch a little bit more on why the change in the last 50 years from that classical view to the current view? I probably will not be doing that. Okay. Uh, I can certainly recommend some literature on that, but I probably will not be. I'll just be touching on the differences. But yeah, that is a good point that, you know, people like me who grew up in the church we think, well, hasn't it always been this way? No, no. The idea of pre-tribulationalism, um, pre-millennialism, the, the dispensational position, that's relatively new in the history of the church. It's pretty much happened in this, in the, well, in the 20th century. I keep forgetting we're in 21 now, aren't we? In the 20th century. else 
Um, this isn't, uh, it's sort of just along the lines of an observation, I guess, and kind of a, a conundrum or a, a puzzle that the world, I mean, the, the rapture will be an observable event, right? Or a noticeable event for those that don't go, right? Or, well, only in that certain people will disappear. Yeah. Probably a lot. <laughs> it just is always interesting to me that there will be people left behind that will be struck with this, this prophetic uh, promise of God being fulfilled. I, I realize that they're not believers, so that's not going to be their language that they're used to. But anyway, just that there will be people left behind and that they will, I guess it's the depravity of the human mind that they'll, they'll come up with some other answer for that, I suppose. And or, or does the rapture prompt them to say, whoa, 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 maybe my weird neighbor who kept going to church every Sunday had was on to something. Will, will that not spark evidence I of... I think it's all of the above. Yeah. I think it's it, it will be... There will be... I, I keep seeing in my mind, whenever I think of the rapture, I keep going back to this short video that was shown when Pastor Gary was here, Pastor Crandall. He showed it one Sunday morning. And it's profound in its simplicity. It shows a church much like this one with all the seats filled and everyone there. And then there is this crack as if there were a lightning strike just outside the window. Crack. And most everyone's gone. And what I remember in this video was those left behind, they're stunned. And the next moment, they just dropped their head in their hands. I wasn't a believer. I wasn't a Christian. And I think those, they might say, they might turn to God. They might turn to Christ. There are others who say, okay, now's my chance. I think all of the above. Because the depravity of man will remain. That's the point. The church is now gone, and you think we don't have much influence in this world, but on a supernatural basis, the church does. We are, we and with the Spirit in us. Imagine, imagine the power of the Holy Spirit. Just, just here, a half-filled room of believers. I'll just assume that everyone here is a believer, just for the sake of argument. That in each one of us, we have the Holy Spirit in us. Imagine the power of that. Imagine the power that we rarely tap into. Just in this room, imagine that if we could see it, the, the vibrancy, the power, the, the just things that we can't see because we're of flesh. Well, magnify that around the world. And in a moment, gone. And evil just floods in where it it has been held back all this time. I think all of the above. There will some that will fall on their knees and worship a true and holy God. Others will say, now's my chance. Yes, Greg. Well, I was just going to say sort of in answer to T Timothy. Yes, it, it is amazing that people wouldn't just immediately look at the uh, results of the rapture and, and say, boy, I missed something. I need to really pay attention but we know that scripture tells us that after people, after unbelievers have gone through the tribulation, 
and had the word proclaimed clearly during the tribulation, and they saw around them all sorts of supernatural events occurring, when the Lord does return and they see him, what's their response? Is it to fall on their knees and go, man, I just didn't get it. I'm sorry. And I, I see now. That's not the response. The response is to shake their fist at him. So they no longer hide behind, well, I didn't know. Well, now they know. And the true reason why they didn't bow the knee before is evident. Mm-hmm. I knew and I hate you for it. This may be going back to your paper road pages 168, 169, maybe. So if if 160, 161, let's get 220, 221, you know. <laughs> if your position is that when the rapture occurs, that the spirit goes also. Those people who are still here sitting in church and were not believers, and all of a sudden they realize, does that mean that they will not then be indwelled with the Holy Spirit? I'm still chewing on that. I'm okay. still working on it. Um, I, because in my position, the Holy Spirit leaves with the church, that does not mean that he never comes back. For one thing, well, during the millennium, Christ is on his throne on earth. Does that mean we don't need the Spirit? Or is the Spirit there working on earth again? Because there are believers, just as, Greg, you're right, there are those who still shake their fist at God and Christ Jesus. There are those who do believe. During the tribulation, there are those who knew Christians who do believe. Does the Spirit come back to them? I, I don't have an answer for that yet. During the millennium, surely, with Christ on his throne ruling the earth, yeah, there'll still be those who hate him, but there will be new Christians who do. What the Spirit does at that time, I don't know the answer to that yet. I, I, hope, I knew that, that question would come up, and I don't have it yet. I don't want to guess. I, I want to, I'm still looking at what God's Word says about that, if anything at all. Yes, ma'am. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Okay. With regard to that, um, maybe I missed it, but where did you say the scripture talks about the spirit leaving? That's one question. And the second is, um, if people are still being saved, people will still be saved during the tribulation, and how can they be saved unless the spirit draw them? Ah, good point. Very good point. I've always figured just that the Spirit has to be involved in new Christians. Yes, that's that's a very good point. Thank you. To to answer your first question, um, um, ah, uh, the answer to your question is Second Thessalonians two verses five to seven. 2 Thessalonians 2, 5 to 7. And it's admittedly an opaque, hard to understand passage. Not everyone interprets it that way, but many do. 
Anything else? We're a little over. Just wanted to say, end on a, a great positive note. I like uh, John chapter 14, and I like what you said. Uh, you know, Jesus has done so much for us, and he could have left us on our own to say, I've done this for you, now you get your way to heaven. But he seals us with his Holy Spirit. And how important that Holy Spirit is to us daily now, uh, that we could never live our lives for him without the help of the Holy Spirit in us. And he hasn't left us alone. He's coming back for us. You know, he could have said, here, I'll, I'll see you in heaven. But he's coming back personally because he loves us to make sure we get to heaven. And he's going to make sure that we persevere. Yes, we sing about that. We sing he will hold us. And how wonderful that is, If we, what a promise that is when we realize that he is the one who comes personally and takes us home. But also keep in mind that once that happens, we don't need the Spirit. We're with Christ. Now, that sounds kind of cold. We don't need the Spirit. But the, the primary purpose of the Spirit is our, He is our, our guarantee, our promise. He, 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 he's the one who guarantees what will happen in the future. He's the one who interprets God's Word for us. He's the one who helps us by extension. I've always thought, I've always termed the, the, the Spirit as our umbilical to God. Well, this means we're going to be with God. So yes, the Spirit is somewhere doing something, but we as believers don't need Him in the way, we'll no longer need Him in the way that we do now. We'll be with Him, Christ Jesus, before the throne of God. And that has to change how you live now. Father God, what, how powerful is your word. And speaking of the Spirit, we need him in this class to translate your word for us. May everything taught, discussed, absorbed, understood in this class be true to your word and guided, informed by your gracious Holy Spirit. That is our prayer. In Jesus' name.